There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 33 for September of 2018. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about the new and returning genre shows we're looking forward to for the fall season. And our show topics include a look at the new supernatural thriller, The Innocents, on Netflix, and a spoiler-free sneak peek at Hulu's Sean Penn vehicle, The First. Right. That last one, of course, is the uh, first expedition to Mars, kind of nominally science fiction. But I was just so glad, Dave, that we were able to find shows to talk about because September these days seems to be kind of like a pause before the true fall season begins in late September and early October. Yeah. I mean, when did this happen? I, I, I mean, I guess it's the blowing up of networks like Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, all producing their own content. So maybe that's thrown things off a little bit. But yeah, like you said, it's uh, fortunately we came up with two. <laughs> right. And I was even kind of scrambling for an interview. I got in touch with one of my favorite publicists and I said, who you got? Who you got? And she said, well, Last Ship happens to be in its fifth and final season. And she was able to get us an interview with Bridget Regan. And I'm so happy we got this one because it's probably one of my most favorite interviews we've had in the past few months, just from the sheer fun that it was to discuss not only this show, but other genre shows that Bridget Regan has been part of. But that interview has no spoilers whatsoever because we kind of stay very broad with The Last Ship. And if you are trying to avoid spoilers for the show topics, we should you should know that Dave is only going to be discussing the first few episodes of The Innocents, and that season is available in its entirety on Netflix. So you maybe can stay a little bit spoiler-free, depending on where you are in your own viewing. And the first, since it doesn't come out until later in September, is going to be spoiler-free as much as I can do it, and you'll see why I say that. But if you need to skip around to avoid certain topics or to... Stick with your own interests. Here are the time codes for today's discussions. Anticipated fall shows. 253. The Innocents. 1722. The First. 3748. The Last Ship Interview. 5726. All right. And our discussion topic is relatively spoiler-free if you uh, were just discussing the generalities of the shows that we are looking forward to the most returning and new in the fall. And like we said, there aren't that many new ones this season, even later in fall, but we do have quite a few of the more peripheral shows that we're really looking forward to. So we kind of stayed off the beaten path, wouldn't you say, Dave? I, I would. And not that the ones we're going to talk about here 
aren't good shows because they are, but they are returning shows. There aren't too many new ones. And some of them just require a second look, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, before I get to my first show, um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how we're going to keep the first spoiler free, but I'm going to leave that up to you. <laughs> okay. So, All right. Now, of my three shows, one that I left off and it's not because I don't love it. I cover it for Den of Geek, and that is Van Helsing, which will be coming back the beginning of October, but it's not on my list. So the first show I'm going with, and anybody that knows me is probably thinking, you put Iron Fist on your list? <laughs> yeah. Season two is returning September 7th, Netflix. And I say that because despite the fact that Iron Fist was generally viewed as the weak link in Netflix's Marvel stable, I mean, there's still a lot to like. Unfortunately for me, Danny Rand isn't on that list of things to like. Oh, gosh, (laughs) that's okay. There are other reasons to like that show. Well, there are. And and season one ends with Danny and Colleen at Kunlun in sort of a between worlds kind of deal, which was very cool when we got to the end of that and you're just kind of left hanging where are they how are they going to get anywhere so i mean for me i'm really hoping the writers do something to make danny rand a little bit more likable i know the the prevailing wisdom was that he was kind of a little whiny in season one (laughs) yeah and i've heard people excuse that or attribute that to the fact that well he didn't want to be a superhero he wanted to just be left alone and well okay whatever i mean most superheroes kind of go through that and they don't act as he acted they get into it eventually (laughs) they do and he does kind of so I, i am looking forward to it i mean it certainly wasn't one of my favorite marvel shows on netflix but uh you know i did go through season one and you know i i enjoyed it but it just other things i enjoyed colleen wing for one <laughs> yeah that's right you mentioned that at the time and there's good news of course if you are following the iron fist spoiler free reviews that are out there on den of geek they insist that iron fist 2 is much improved so i think you'll be pleased with it dave oh that's good to hear And it makes sense that you didn't necessarily do Van Helsing from the standpoint of we've given that a lot of coverage on this podcast. And the ones we're talking about have only been discussed briefly or in in some cases, not at all on the podcast yet. And I will start with the only new show on our list today, and that is Manifest, which is on NBC starting September 24th at 10 p.m. And this is one that's either intriguing a lot of people or causing them to immediately think, oh, this is something I can just brush off because A, it's on a network, main network like NBC, which is sometimes a red flag for some folks. And also because it sounds familiar in different ways to other shows that they may be trying to imitate. Now, for those of you not familiar with Manifest, the premise of this show is there's a commercial flight full of passengers that completely disappears from the radar, leading people to believe that it's been lost but it suddenly resurfaces five years later. And the catch is the ordeal was instantaneous for the passengers on board the flight. They didn't experience any time lapse whatsoever. Whereas everyone on the ground thought they were gone and dead and and presumed lost at sea or something like that. So the, the really cool premise that that starts with is what has me hooked from the start. 
And my first reaction was, oh, they're rebooting the 4400. <laughs> yeah. And the plane might lead some people to feel like it's trying to go for the lost vibe as well. Especially since there seems to be some tie-ins with a higher purpose to this having happened. Because that no one can explain why or how it happened that they had this time difference and lost time, if you will. And there's one example that I saw in an interview where there's apparently a sick child on board that five years ago did not have a treatment for their ailment. And then now five years later does. And so they almost feel like there was a reason why this person was held in stasis until they could be cured. But I'm sure there's other things that are going to be like that too, that are somewhat metaphysical or supernatural in nature. And that's another piece of it that makes me look forward to it. So September 24th, I'll be looking out for manifest. Maybe it'll even show up as a topic on this podcast. We'll see. All right, Mike, we rarely talk about situation comedies and I'm not certain that the good place, which is on NBC coming back for its third season on September 27th, qualifies as a situation comedy, but I don't know what else to call it. Well, we did talk about it on this podcast as a topic, so I think it qualifies as genre. Well, I I do too, uh, starring Kristen Bell and Ted Danson, and I was kind of a Ted Danson fan way back on Cheers days, but not really anything he did in the interim, but he is just outstanding in this. Kristen Bell, a lot of you guys probably know from Veronica Mars and uh, what's that other show she's in? I can't remember. Some kind of lawyer show or <laughs> well, on, like Showtime. Or All I, I know is that Veronica Mars has made a resurgence for a certain young 10-year-old in my household who I think is ready to try it out. So we're going to give that a, a family viewing shot. So Kristen Bell is definitely a favorite. <laughs> well, I came to it late. My wife and I actually saw the movie and then went back and watched <laughs> oh, <wow>. the show. <laughs> but if you don't know, The Good Place may be network television's first and only existential series of any type. So uh, if you don't know the premise, Eleanor, who's played by Kristen Bell, dies. And it's some, you know, freaky accident, like she gets hit by a shopping cart at a mall or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget what it is. That's it. <laughs> but she finds herself in the good place. And what she learns along the way is that there's been a mistake and she really was supposed to go to the bad place. And one of her compatriots, Chidi, was a philosophy professor in life. And he sets out to try to teach her how to be good so that she's worthy of staying in the good place. So, I mean, it does a wonderful job of examining the struggle to be good the complexities that make living life so challenging. And it does all of that within the context of a half hour comedy. It, it's, I can't recommend it more highly. Yeah, and it always manages to twist our expectations. Certainly you explained the premise of season one, but it has gone through several permutations since then. <laughs> and I think this season they're actually going to be back on earth for a bit. So can't wait to see that. Yeah. I think it's fair to say there was a paradigm shift. Yes. Each time, each season. And love that. And the next one I'm going to be talking about is something that I came to late as well. And that's lore, a horror series on Amazon. It's kind of a documentary style though. So you, at first you think, well, this really isn't fiction, but the way that it's framed in a narrative style is what works for me. Plus I enjoyed the podcast that it's based on. And I thought at first that this lore, which begins on October 19th, this is one of our later entries in this list, 
on Amazon for a second season of six episodes, I didn't think it was going to translate to the visual medium because it did make a very creepy podcast to be talking about some of the legends of old and how they came to be werewolves, vampires, you know, framing it in a story to make it sound creepier, but also keep that historical context as well. And it did translate really well. Season one had even actors like Robert Patrick portraying a church leader who wants to connect with his dead wife. And it ends up because it's based in reality, a little bit creepier than most horror fiction. And because it's only six episodes, I was able to indulge in it just to try it out. And it felt like I was watching a podcast, even though it was a full length TV show. So I'm really looking forward to season two to see what new things they can come up with. There's a wealth of stuff that they can pull from because the podcast definitely had other topics that haven't been explored yet, but I just like being able to watch a a show that would normally be on maybe the discovery channel or the learning channel or one of those reality show type of networks, but it comes across as a genre show because of the way it's told. So definitely looking forward to that. It starts on October 19th and it's definitely bingeable for those of you who might be interested. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure how I feel about these six episode seasons, unless it's a show that my wife wants to watch and I'm really not into it. Then I like the six episode seasons. Well, it's good for episodic. I mean, these are obviously not related to each other in any way. They're, they're just like bite sized pieces separate from each other. All right. Now, my third show, I believe we covered this earlier on Sci-Fi Fidelity as well, The Gifted. Yes, we did. Which is coming back for season two on Fox, September 25th. And it's a show that I was pretty certain I was not going to like. Yeah, me too. And then I really liked it. Yeah. (laughs) So, again, if you don't know the show, mom and dad's lives change when they discover their son and daughter possess superpowers. You're probably saying to yourself, well... I've heard this premise before, and and I would say, yeah, you have. You're right. And is there a lot new here? I mean, yes and no. Well, the main thing, I think, is that it's built off of the X-Men universe, and that allows for a lot more building off of a pre-existing universe in that sense. Well, Well, right, exactly, because these are children that are trying to learn to adjust to their newfound superpowers while they're being chased to avoid the anti-mutant sentiment that has risen to this fever pitch in the country. You might know Stephen Moyer from True Blood. He plays the father, Amy Acker, who we all love from Dollhouse. And then I know you watch Person of Interest, and I know she's in that. Mm -hmm. But they're the parents who are trying to keep their kids safe as they begin this life on the run. But the fact that they don't have superpowers and they've got to now come to terms with the fact that their kids need to learn how to harness these powers if they are going to survive. And it's a pretty good show. I mean, you definitely want to go back and watch season one. If you haven't seen it, it's again, I can't remember whether it's 10 or 13 episodes, but uh, the gifted on Fox September 25th. Yeah, definitely had some nice twists and turns throughout the season and looking forward to where they take it in the next season. And speaking of which, a couple of our discussion topics have tried those paradigm shifts, as you mentioned. And I think that might be true for my last topic. And that is the man in the high castle, which begins season three on October 5th on Amazon. 
and it's got 10 episodes to share with us on that day. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this Philip K. Dick adaptation, it's basically an alternate history where the Nazis won World War II. And the first season was just very visionary. And then the second season was great. But the problem was it ended with perhaps a too accelerated foiling of a conspiracy within the Reich. So I was a little bit worried if it had gone off the rails there towards the end, but it had a couple of nice twists. And I'm happy to report that uh, since I'm kind of watching it ahead of time at a breakneck speed to try and write my reviews to be ready for October 5th, I can report that it definitely does have a really cool new focus, specifically focusing more on the existence of these parallel worlds that we saw in seasons one and two. And so we actually do more than just a glancing blow with that concept. And one of those parallel worlds we saw in season two was our own one where the Nazis did not win. (laughs) So it does actually resonate quite well with, you know, the current world climate. And I have to say, I'm particularly looking forward to seeing a more fitting role for the character of Joe Blake, who I felt was sort of underutilized in season two. And he's going to be doing some cool things in season three, but also just a reshuffling of everyone. You know, people who are in New York might show up in San Francisco. We see a lot more of the neutral zone. And so I can't wait to see where they go in season three of the man in the high castle, which begins on October 5th. I'm embarrassed to say I still haven't seen season two. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think it's definitely worth a, a go at it. Even though I mentioned it was a little rushed at the end, just from the sheer scale of the conspiracy that they show in that season as well. But yeah, I I definitely have been enjoying it and I'm looking forward to reviewing it on Den of Geek. But it's interesting that that was our discussion topic, Dave, because that was about to be our entire podcast. We were going to do another fall TV preview like we did, I think, a couple of years ago now when we first started doing this podcast because of this gulf that usually exists in September where there's no shows starting. But we actually kind of stumbled upon a couple of real gems. Now, I think that these two shows that we're going to talk about, The Innocents on Netflix and The First on Hulu, are not necessarily for everyone. But Dave and I both have discovered that we really found some things that we personally latched onto that maybe we can communicate to you. And Dave, you're going to start with The Innocents. I am. And as you said, this is on Netflix. It dropped August 24th. But I'm really only going to talk about the first two episodes. Now, one of the first things you notice right away, it's filmed in England and Norway. So we get a feel that we don't ordinarily get to experience because, look, face it, most of the shows we watch are filmed either in the United States or more likely in Canada. And, right. <laughs> you know, we understand the financial reasons for that. And Canada has its own feel and look, as does Washington State. But you know, there's just something about England and Norway. So right away, we get that. Now, the show centers around teenagers. And anytime I hear that a show is going to be centered around teenagers, I'm always worried it's going to fall into that CW trap of falling back on relationships as the primary focus, the hundred notwithstanding. Yeah. <laughs> but the two lead characters are just great. Now, you and I have been doing interviews and podcasts for over six years now, and occasionally we get an actor's name that we're not sure how to pronounce. And 
typically we go to YouTube. We try to find an interview where <laughs> where they say their name. Well, for the female character who is Scottish, I heard her say it and she said it so fast and so <laughs> mumbly that I still don't know how we'll forgive you. She really pronounces it. I've heard interviewers interviewing her say it two different ways and she doesn't correct them, which is probably not <laughs> unusual. So it's either Sorka or Sorsha ground cell. And you may know her from the series click. She plays June McDaniel. Purcell Ascot is an English actor, Wizards versus Aliens, and he plays Harry Polk. So those are the the focus of the series. And as far as the other actors, you may know Guy Pierce, who plays Ben Halverson. Yeah, he's the one I recognized. Right. So the show centers around these two. And, and as I said, they're just so likable right away, so engaging. It's it's really difficult not to be drawn in from the start. And the first thing I thought of, well, if Doctor Who ever wants to return to a couple as the Doctor's companions, these two would just be spectacular. Right. We really buy into their puppy love, if you will, where they're going to be running away from their parents to experience life on their own, free of any encumbrances and all the other things that they dream about. And you're just along for the ride from the very start. Right. And certainly they think they are just going to run away as lovers. But of course, it's never that simple. Uh, the first scene we see Ben played by Guy Pierce, and he's trying to stop this man from jumping off a cliff. And he's trying to talk him down, reason with him. It's a scene we've seen many times and just often as not, they jump anyway, but he talks the guy down and back home, he refers to this guy as his love. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's fine. But later we see Ben with Elena who he also refers to as love. And it sounds eerily similar to the way he had just been saying it to this man that, that uh, we see earlier. So now we're thinking like, well, wait a minute, what the heck is going on? And that's the first instance in this series that we've realized that there is something afoot. We're not sure exactly what it is right away, but once we establish that there are these people with powers at the core of the story, it seems as if Ben is running some kind of school or center, not unlike Professor Charles Xavier in, in X-Men, maybe not quite as elaborate. Oh, not only not as elaborate, but I think you're being very kind to liken it to that because it seems very controlling to me. I mean, I guess they intimate that these powers that they have where they can transform their appearance to look like another person is dangerous somehow, which I guess it would be, but we haven't seen specific evidence of that. It's almost as though they fear their own talents in that regard. Well, and the point is we really don't know by the end of episode two, what Ben's motivation is. What does he really hope to do here? Is he simply trying to help these people learn to cope with these power or is there some deeper nefarious place he wants to have these people go with with their power well yeah it's i think it's purposeful that they want us to wonder whether or not june was supposed to go with these guys because of her mother's involvement which i'm sure you're going to talk about 
or whether or not these guys are dangerous and they should be running away from them. Cause I do get the impression that the guys that are coming after this young couple are dangerous in themselves, but the grander purpose might not be. So it's hard to tell. I mean, are we back to continuum where liberate are actually the good guys? <laughs> yeah. Who knows? And I think that's good. The way they have that conflict in the viewer's mind works really well. Yeah. So to start with Harry and June, June just turned 16 she and Harry plan to run away together. And, you know, I mean, her father seems nice enough, but apparently imposes a lot of rules on her, though he implies that after they arrive at their new location, he's going to be able to ease up a bit. Now, we get the idea she's not really happy about moving, but, I mean, he doesn't come across as anything other than a strict father who loves his daughter. So, so we're wondering, what is it they're running away from? And again, that contributes to the ambiguity because you wonder, is there something up with what the father is doing? Because he seems well-intentioned, but also, again, very controlling, but is the control for a reason. So in that sense, he's very similar to what we end up seeing of Ben. It's like they're each trying to contain a situation, presumably with regard to the powers that they exhibit. Yeah. And and then we run across June's brother, Ryan, who apparently is agoraphobic. And at first it appears as if his father has him locked in this room, which does have all the creature comforts. It's certainly not a cell or anything like that. But as the episode goes on, it's it's we're not so sure that he's being locked in as opposed to that. He wants to be removed from the outside world, if you will. But her brother Ryan tells her that her father is not really their father and keeping that in the back of your mind as you work through the first couple episodes. Well, what does that actually mean? Is that a metaphor? Is it literal? We don't really know, but we do learn that their mother's not there. Did she leave? Is she dead? Did they get divorced? We don't know. Well, we, we know. I think they don't know. <laughs> right. Now, we get some sense of why June wants to leave. We get it. 16-year-old girls don't like having their fathers impose a lot of rules, particularly when they have a boyfriend. And it seems like he's removing her to a very remote location yes. where she won't have any friends or anything. <laughs> right. Now, Harry's dad, we learn, suffers some debilitating condition And while Harry is really sweet with him and cares for his father, we learn that this burden that's been placed on this young man is really weighing him down. And we can understand that he's probably so conflicted about abandoning his mother who works and his father who needs him. But again, what's he going to do? So he and June run away. Well, the main thing that I took from that as well, since I haven't seen the remainder of the season, and there might be some listeners out there who have seen the whole season and know what's up, but I get the impression that Harry's father is tied up in this somehow too. His debilitating condition might have something to do with the dangers that we see elsewhere, but I could be wrong, but that's the impression I get. All right. Now, you mentioned Ben's people as being dangerous, and, and clearly they are when we, we see the way they go about finding information so that they can find June. But the one character, Steiner, who is the guy that Ben talks down from the bridge, and then he 
back at the compound, refers to him as his love and, and all of that. Well, he claims to be a friend of June's mother, Elena, and he and another man are trying to abduct June and take her back to Ben. But Harry, God bless him, fights them off and <laughs> yeah. initially thinks he's killed Steiner, which is a pretty heavy burden to place on a young man that's already got all these burdens on him as well. And when they leave him for dead and then take that room at the motel, we have seen enough of these shows that we're thinking, well, I wonder if he really is dead. Right. And I think that's probably what June thinks as well. <laughs> and that's why she checks up on him. Right. So she goes back to the location, finds he's not dead. Harry, as I said, deeply affected, thinking he's killed a man. Now, meanwhile, Ben's trying to reach Steiner, who called him presumably with news that he'd found June. And, and we hear about Sanctum, but we don't really get anything more than that. So is Sanctum you know, the place that uh, Ben houses all these people? We don't really know. But yeah, it's like a commune of some kind, I think. Yeah. Right. But Elena, who we're told is June's mother, wonders if June is, quote, one of us. So, you know, Steiner tracks down Harry at the motel. But when he confronts Harry, we learn that June now somehow inhabits Steiner's body, which explains the opening scene at the cliff in that Elena is inhabiting Steiner's body. And that's, of course, why Ben refers to both as his love. So we're thinking in our aha moment, are these some kind of shapeshifters, right. body jumpers? I think body jumpers probably a little more accurate. Well, except they're not stealing the body. I think June takes great pains to tell Harry that the body of Steiner was still there. But when they are shapeshifted into that person's form, the people that they are imitating can't continue. They like their eyes roll back in their head and they are comatose while someone is imitating them. And I find that a very interesting <laughs> twist on the shape-shifting idea. Plus, in our smug realization that this is what's going on, it still doesn't quite explain why Elena was about to run off a cliff and was running from Ben, even though she was in Steiner's form. So there's definitely some mysteries that must unfold as the season goes on. And, and again, there might be some listeners out there who already know the answer to that, but that it's nice that it's teased out in these initial episodes. Well, and the other thing, and I wonder, and again, this might be something we find out later, whether it's a narrative device or it's an actual part of the you know, ability, you know, Harry's running from Steiner who claims that he's June and reveals things only June could know. So Harry sees Steiner. He sees this big grizzly guy with a beard, except we see June in the mirror's reflection. Right, which is a cool little effect. You would think that it might be just something that the shapeshifter themselves would see, but Harry sees it too. Right, so I'm guessing it's more than a narrative device. For sure, yeah. But they're on the run. They've got Steiner after them, and you know, poor Harry. Everything seems to go wrong. He, he tries to get food from the vending machine, drops a soda <laughs> that explodes, the sandwich gets stuck, and... Meanwhile, Steiner is after any information to try to track these guys down and beats up the guy that sold Harry his car in the first place. But we really get a sense 
of what's happening. I mean, we don't understand it because June doesn't understand it. That scene where they're in the tub in the motel room and June tells Harry that there were two of us in her body, but she wasn't in his. And that her clothes tore when his consciousness entered her body. So she took his clothes, which explains why she's wearing that big old dirty sweater. Right. Well, it's weird because it almost seems like it was tied into her 16th birthday. I think they said 16, where this is when her ability would manifest itself, which makes me believe that that's why her father was choosing this particular moment to squirrel her away. And also why Ben was seeking her out to bring her in. So it's definitely tied into adolescence in some form. And it almost intimates that Ben's group is helping these people control their abilities or maybe even suppress them. And that there's some sort of trigger, some sort of emotional response that Ben is seeking out in these shapeshifters to find out what it is that triggers them and how to remove that so that they don't, (laughs) you know, take over people's bodies. But I do wonder, since June does transform back into herself, is it a timed thing? Does it just wear off or what? So there's a lot of questions remaining about how this ability works. Right. And the other thing I find interesting here is that June and Harry are running away because they feel trapped. And obviously we see that they're going to end up with Ben and June's mother, Elena, at some point, or it certainly seems that way. And they're going to be trapped all over again. Well, especially since you mentioned some of the bad luck they had at the hotel. Obviously, they couldn't have anticipated what happened to June. But even the place they end up in London, when they finally think they're free again, ends up being a real crap hole. And it's like this plan really needed a little bit of work. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's another reason why maybe they should end up with Ben, even if it's dangerous for them. Yeah, I think we're being generous to call that place a flop house. <laughs> yeah. So, but the other thing that I thought was cool because June goes through Steiner's pocket and she finds the cell phone and immediately finds a video to play and it turns out to be, you know, a minute and a half of her mother. If you're watching this, trust the guy that's showing this to you and come to me in Norway. Maybe Steiner just needs work on his approach. (laughs) Maybe he's just not a people person. I don't know. Well, I I understand (laughs) that. And again, I guess we don't really know what June has been told about her mother by her father. I mean, and we certainly get the impression that they did not have an amicable split. Now, it's probably over the mother's shifting abilities, but we don't know that for sure. Certainly seems to be headed that way. Yeah, and I, I feel like June's father wanted to keep her from being drawn into Ben's group. And Elena may be sort of a victim of a cult mentality. I mean, who knows? It could be that June's father is in the right. So it's that really cool ambiguity where you're not sure who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Always fun. Right, And you mentioned the group. I mean, Elena's being studied to determine the trigger of her first shift and, you know, we, we see her strapped in a chair and Ben's showing images and slides, classical music's playing in the background. Respond, clear, respond, clear. And, and eventually, after breezing through the first set of slides, she starts getting increasingly agitated and 
we assume this is a method to teach her how to control the shift. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And I think she just doesn't shift because Ben leaves the room. There's no one to imitate. Perhaps it requires a touch or seeing the person you're shifting into. I'm not sure, but, or maybe she's successfully stifled it or just passed out before she could shift. So yeah, very interesting how this is happening. And again, I have to reiterate the fact that it's being treated like it's dangerous. And I don't know that there's necessarily any specific evidence that it does things to people because June acted normal enough other than being alarmed. So I can't wait to see how this is treated long-term as the series goes on. Yeah. But you know, who's going to be after this sort of ability. Who's that? The military. Of course, that's the trope. (laughs) Right. Now, real quickly, just one other aspect, the parents dealing with the disappearances of their children, you know, Harry and June's families are just now figuring out that they're gone. Her father, if you're a fan of dark, her father reminds me a lot of Ulrich, just like bursting in, demanding information, prying open her locker with a crowbar, (laughs) barely in control while Harry's mom. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm as a police officer, and she's very methodical. So the two of them talk. I don't think either was really aware of the extent of their children's relationship with each other. So that's where we are. It's an intriguing show. I mean, as soon as I get a chance, I'm going to go back and, and and just probably binge the rest. Yeah. But if you have Netflix, it's certainly worth checking out. Well, that's what's so great about what Netflix is doing with its international content. They're teaming up with other networks and basically giving them more than they would normally have. I think the UK especially has seen other shows like this, not the least of which is, is misfits, but this one got a larger budget because of Netflix uh, giving it a push. So not only is it a boon for people watching shows in their native countries, but it's also giving a different flavor to those of us who are used to seeing just the U S and Canadian shows, like you said. So I'm so glad this trend has started (laughs) not only with this show, but dark and others. Do I need to see misfits? I think you should watch at least a few episodes. I think you would enjoy it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I keep running across it in my reading. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely enjoyed it. Very funny show in addition to some fun powers. But the one I'm going to be talking about next is certainly not in the traditional genre vein because it's very nominally science fiction, except from the standpoint that it's about 
man's first expedition to Mars. And that's where the name comes from. The first is on Hulu on September 14th. All eight episodes will drop on that day. And really the science fiction elements come into play with two different pieces. One is that it takes place in the 2030 time frame. And also they just give us little tastes of futuristic technology. That's not really in your face, but it's enough to make me feel like, okay, we're in a science fiction show. And I'll talk a little bit about those, but really this show is geared towards showcasing star and producer Sean Penn, who is returning to television after many, many years, obviously as an Academy award winning actor in the movies. So that alone should be enough to draw people in. But what I'm finding Dave is that also people address Sean Penn trying to go into a TV with a little trepidation because of the idea that he's just another brooding male in one of these shows where he's going to become a hero. And I'm not sure I buy that particular characterization. Yeah. And I don't either. I mean, if anything, we can't really blame that on him in the first place. You have to blame that on the writers. But the other thing before we go much further, I couldn't help but make the comparison to another show we talked about a while ago, Nat Geo Mars. Right. And in fact, there's a lot of similarities to that show. And I'll bring those up as they appear, because Nat Geo's Mars has the fictional element mixed in with the nonfiction discussion of what a first mission to Mars might look like. So when you're coming at the show thinking, okay, great, we're going to see some of the same things. We're going to see some of the dangers of living on Mars. We're going to see something like the Martian with Matt Damon. No, that's not what you're going to see. So (laughs) we need to address up front that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that both of these shows are not necessarily for everyone. And this one is not necessarily for everyone, not only because it has that very peripheral attachment to science fiction elements because it is very realistic, but also because it's character focused. It's not really about, or at least not in season one, it's not really about dangers happening on Mars. It's more about getting there and what it's going to take for our society to buy into this idea. And then once you've got that concept there, it's really just the characters themselves that are the focus of the show. So it is a very, very, very character driven drama. And if that's not your thing, then maybe this isn't going to be your show, but because these characters are so deep and really well-written and they really have me intrigued from the very start, that's why I got sucked in, not because of the science fiction, not because of the Mars part, but because of the characters themselves. So in that sense, it's almost like a traditional drama. Right. And what's really drawing me in as well, though, and I agree with everything you just said, that this is a science fiction mission that's actually believable, that's actually achievable. Right. We can get to Mars. We will get to Mars. We will colonize Mars. We're not going out in the Firefly universe or the Star (laughs) Wars universe or the Star. uh, I mean, certainly not in our lifetime. Yeah, it might not be quite as far as the expanse takes it, but certainly we could see at least people on Mars doing scientific study. And that's what really this is geared towards. A man mission to Mars is planned, but Sean Penn's character at the beginning of this series, his name is Tom Haggerty. And for some reason he has been removed as the mission commander of this expedition to Mars. And it's not clear why. And this is one thing that I have to say is really, really wonderful about this series is that we're just kind of dropped in the middle. They're not going to 
hold our hands, you're going to have to catch up. You're going to have to figure out, well, why is he being treated that way? Why is this person experiencing these emotions? Why are they feeling sort of traumatized? That kind of stuff. You'll get that as time goes by. And I like that sense of discovery. And it's important to note that that's the kind of thing we're going to be focusing on in this discussion, because something really, really big happens in the first episode of this series that I absolutely cannot talk about without spoiling the whole thing. (laughs) And that was a real challenge. Right. And when he says something big, he means really big. Right. And, And I was like, okay, well, how do I address this? And in fact, some reviews that are out there even kind of point out right from the start what we're dealing with here. And I kind of say, well, I'm not going to do that here in the podcast because it really still is about the grander vision, despite what happens in the pilot. Okay. You better stop there. Yes. But what the, but what the something big does help us do is discover how these characters react to that initial happening. So Sean Penn is portraying this man who is damaged by the loss of his wife. Again, mysterious circumstances. In fact, I've only gotten a certain number of episodes into this series and I still don't necessarily know what happened to his wife. And I like, again, that that mystery is unfolding. That's part of the the joy of the show. And his daughter has become estranged at some point, but we rediscover her in this series as well. Again, dropped in the middle. We assume that the estrangement has something to do with the loss of her mother and his wife but it takes some time to discover what's going on there. So Sean Penn basically just has his dog. He jogs around the city. He lives in a fairly large house, but has one section of it closed off that you assume is associated with his wife in some way. And he doesn't want to touch it. He's leaving it just as it is. And there's a wonderful reveal related to that in the uh, second episode as well. Exactly. And some people may think, Oh, well that's, a very familiar trope. We've got the damaged man and what are we going to do with this? That's new and innovative. And we read, Dave and I read this particular review on Collider that dubbed him as sad man with a tortured past. And it's like, well, that's true. But I think Sean Penn should be given a little bit more credit than just playing a, an archetype because he certainly has character beyond that. Well, especially when you get the reveal of what, his wife did for a living, for instance, and then we know that he is an astronaut in the space program. And how did these two ever even come together? (laughs) And again, like you said, we don't really know the circumstances behind her death, but there's just so much intrigue there. And again, this reviewer that I read, just realized, well, undoubtedly he's going to become the savior of this Mars mission. And even though he's been removed from the mission, he'll be drawn back in somehow and save the whole thing. Well, yeah, of course it's okay that we know that it's Sean Penn. We're going to see him do this progression of all the difficulties that it takes to get this mission off the ground. And that's, that's fine. You don't, it doesn't matter that we know that. I mean, you can say that a lot about a lot of shows that have a hero that's trying to overcome some adversity. But in reality, what I see in the first couple of episodes is that Tom Haggerty is a sensitive soul who sees the importance of human connections. And then they put that up against the fact that this dream of getting to Mars and being an astronaut sort of consumes him 
to the point where he almost loses the grip on humanity because he's so driven by that. So those opposites kind of pull him in in different directions. And the only criticism, in fact, that I would have of Sean Penn's performance in the first couple of episodes is that he does have a couple of little scenes with children that I feel kind of fall flat. They're trying to make him charming because Sean Penn's character is very sensitive and very in touch with human emotions, but I don't feel like he's so good with kids and maybe that's part of the character, but I almost felt like they were trying to let him be a little bit goofy. At one point he's kind of trying to cheer his daughter up by putting some scotch tape on his nose and a character that he played in her childhood called Mr. Hogarty, a play on his last name. And it just is like, uh, it's not necessarily just a bad dad joke. It's just a bad piece of writing in my view. That's the only time when I was kind of like, okay, Sean, you're maybe trying a little bit too hard. (laughs) Well, right. But what I also find really fascinating and somewhat compelling is this is a man who is on the outside looking in as the series begins. And then suddenly he's drawn into it. And right away when he gets back into things, his first acts are not what I would expect They are the acts of a compassionate man. And I just found that really fascinating. Right. The kindness and the bond that he has with his fellow astronauts is job one for him. But it sort of goes back and forth. And so we have to bring in the character of Laz Ingram, who's played by Natasha McElhone, who I'm not sure how she's playing this role and continuing to be in Designated Survivor. But she's in that show as well and also was in Californication. You might recognize her from. I'm still in love with her from that, but <laughs> oh, really? carry on. Oh, yeah. Carry on. But in this one, she's a powerful but kind of socially cold, emotionally cold CEO of Vista, the company that has the government contract to run the Mars mission. And she's kind of set up as Tom's opposite. But what's cool is that when she's around him, which takes a while for that to happen, she does show a little bit of tenderness and feeling towards him. I'm not sure what is behind that. And again, they're probably doling that out in bits and pieces, even though she's the one that took him off the mission. So I thought that was an interesting dynamic. She's really bad with the press. I mean, she puts on a good face when she has to do interviews, but when like one reporter asks her at one point, how are you feeling about the Mars mission? And she's like, well, that's irrelevant. (laughs) What does it matter what I feel? We're just here to get a job done. So, you know, right away, in fact, the first episode almost seems to be not only about that big event that happens, but also just about these two characters, Laz Ingram and Tom Haggerty and what their deal is. So I really think that that was a good uh, way to introduce the story to introduce these two opposites, one who's very cold and one who's very warm and see where it ends up. But I think Dave, my favorite character so far in my viewing has got to be Tom Haggerty's daughter, Denise played by Anna Jacoby Heron, just a wonderful portrayal of a daughter who has issues presumably tied into the loss of her mother, where she's got substance abuse issues. She's got depression issues But she just happens to come back to her father after the big events of the opening episodes. So I thought the timing there was interesting, but also the fact that we're able to see her reforge her bonds with her father 
but also see such a wonderful portrayal of a very fragile young woman. And there's real fear surrounding her reformation as it were, because Tom's really worried about her maybe getting pulled back into some substance abuse issues. And he wants to be able to protect her, but he also wants to pursue this dream of rejoining the Mars mission. So I'm very interested to see where Denise goes. And I thought she was a really wonderfully complex characters where you feel like maybe they could have played this addiction problem with a little bit of a trope to it, but it's anything but. Well, yeah. And, and I love the fact that they're trying to build enough trust in a short period of time that's going to allow both to presumably live apart temporarily. Right. Because if he ends up going to Mars, that's going to be a problem. And that's, I think what is so great about the setup there is that here she's coming back to him, but also it's kind of doomed if he gets his way with uh, his career. Right. And I think in a way she's just as worried about her father as he is of her. Oh yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's actually something that comes about unexpectedly because you expect all of the vulnerability to come from Denise when in actuality, there's some vulnerability on the father's side too, and some strength in Denise that shows itself in the later episodes as well. So, but the story, like I said, does delve a little bit into sci-fi. We get to see some different futuristic elements like cars that can drive themselves. We have a lot of voice commands where Haggerty tells his car door to open, which I thought was a little goofy, but he does a lot of voice commands with the different phone calls that he makes. And they have these really cool view screens that they use several times in the opening episodes that appear in kind of like these sunglasses type of interface that doesn't look like VR where, you know, it looks like actual sunglasses. Right. And, and, you know, anytime you, you go that far in the future, you really almost hamstring yourself. And, and one of the first things I think most people notice are the vehicles and <laughs> yeah, they did what they could. And you know what? Who cares? Moving on. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily matter one way or the other, but I like that they put them in there and they did it with enough subtlety that it wasn't too much as we've seen in other shows. But the launch window for the Mars mission opens in May 2033, which is over a year away. So you know season one will be about getting there. And we've got what you might expect with Senate hearings commencing in which very vocal opponents talk about, well, shouldn't the money go to the schools and other social projects? And what quickly becomes apparent is that Laz, with her cold manner, is never going to get the funding talking about things like global warming. It's funny because in the show we mentioned Nat Geo's Mars, they talk about the fact that, well, we need to be on two different planets in case earth gets hit by a giant asteroid, you know, you got to diversify. And that argument just doesn't fly when you're trying to get funding from Congress. No. And so she knows that Tom's going to have to be the one that comes in here and persuades these guys with his more human emotional appeals and what's great is that he goes totally against expectations in his initial interactions with the senators. And he's got a really interesting strategy for the inevitable success that you know is coming, but it's not easily won. And so I think what we're going to see as this season unfolds is that we're going to get a lot of character dramas surrounding not only the selection of the different team members and the 
difficulties that happen on the ground before the mission starts, just during training, that's going to be the meat of this series. And people might say, well, that's not really what I signed up for, but I'm going to say, stick around. This is something that has some very interesting characters and we are going to get there. I mean, obviously at some point they're going to get to Mars and the story will shift. So if this story gets a second season, I think that's where we'll end up. Yeah. And and I think that opens up. I don't necessarily want to go as far as calling it a paradigm shift, but in, in a way it kind of will be. Right. And we get some flashbacks of earlier missions that Haggerty was on so we could see him in his astronaut element. So that will still be something you get to see. And we get to show not only through those flashbacks, his bond with his fellow astronauts, but also we realize how he could never give this up, not even for his daughter damaged though she may be. So I love that they have this flaw of him wanting to be a family man, but also wanting to pursue his dreams. So his rejoining the mission means that someone that was pre-selected is going to have to get booted from the mission. And that's going to create some drama as well. And there's some great exploration of who's suited to this mission. Is it someone who's going to, for example, leave a colleague behind to save the mission? Or is it going to be someone who would never leave a man behind? And which would Tom choose? You know, which would Tom want? Because you see his human side, his emotional side, but you also know he's going to have to make some tough choices as well. And so I can't wait to see how this mission comes together with this particular personality that Tom Haggerty has. Yeah. And a lot of questions that I know you'll get to in a second that, that really form the basis of the show. Right. Because the central mystery has less to do with the plot and more to do with the characters. I mean, we're wondering what did Tom do to get removed from the mission in the first place? What happened to his wife? There's some mystery there. It's not necessarily just like she, passed away of cancer. I mean, I think there's more to it that, that we don't know. What's the deal with him and Laz? There seems to be something we don't know there. What's going to happen to Denise? I think we, we mentioned is a big part of it and the roadblocks that will be placed in the missions way along the way. It's going to provide a lot of the drama. So I have to just say in conclusion that the pace of this show, the first is slow because of its extreme focus on character And normally this might not be a problem, but some viewers might be anxious to get to the Mars part, like I said, but the characters' stories are worth knowing and new people are entering the picture all the time. And hopefully I was able to give a spoiler-free peek at this show. I feel like we did do the broad strokes with, with still touching on what makes the show watchable, and that is the characters' personalities without going too far into the the big shockers in the, in the first episode. So yeah, I think you did really well. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that was a tough one. Yeah. And, and you know, ordinarily I don't like Sean Penn, but I, I just really fell right in with his character right from the start. So uh, check it out. It drops all eight episodes. Like I said, on September 14th, which is not too long after this podcast comes out. But one show that's coming out almost immediately after this podcast comes out is The Last Ship, Season 5. Another one of these shows that knew it was ending. And that's what makes it so exciting. I mean, we talked about how 12 Monkeys had a final two seasons and was able to wrap it up wonderfully. We had Killjoys in its fourth season, going to end up with its fifth. And now The Last Ship is wrapping up its fifth and final season. And you know it's going out with a bang. 
And part of the wonderfulness of this show is a character who didn't enter until season three. And that's Bridget Regan's character, Sasha. And Bridget Regan entered the awareness of genre fans when she played the ever alluring Kaylin Amnell in the fantasy series, Legend of the Seeker. And Dave and I took note of her multifaceted acting ability when she played Dottie in Agent Carter when we covered that series during the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. hiatus on our podcast, The Sandbox, for Golden Spiral Media. But in addition to her role as Rose in Jane the Virgin, she soon will be seen in the fifth and final season of The Last Ship on TNT as Sasha Cooper. So let's go ahead and take a listen to our interview that we had with her just a couple of days ago. Hi, Michael. Welcome to uh, our little phone call here, Bridget. I'm here with Dave as well. Hi, Bridget. Hey, Dave. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for um, laboring with me on this Labor Day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You must have a welcome day off from... What is it that you're filming in, the, in right now? Are you able to say? I, I'm doing Jane the Virgin. We're, we're starting our fifth and final season on that show. So um, I'm doing that all this week. So I was, I was worried if we pushed it that I might miss you guys. So <laughs> thanks for doing this today. No, no problem. Well, I mean, The Last Ship Season 5 has been wrapped for almost a full year now, and as you said, you've been in full Jane the Virgin mode for some time, but I mean, thinking back, what was the most exciting or bittersweet part of filming the final season of The Last Ship, and how does that translate to seeing it through the audience's eyes starting uh, September 9th? I mean, it was a massive season. I have to say, like, everybody pulled out every single stop that we could. And one of the coolest things was that we teamed up with the Marines this year. So we had the help of the real Navy and Marines. And then we had all these fantastic actors playing Marines. And so the cast kind of, like, doubled in size. And then we got to pull out all the stops because, you know, we got to say, this is our last one, let's go big, you know? And so I, it's just, it's massive. It's like a big blockbuster, massive budget summer movie every week. And we're all just so proud of it. And yeah, it was bittersweet to see it come to an end because it's been such a wild, crazy ride. And, you know, I bonded so much with so many of the castmates and our awesome director, Stephen Kane and showrunner. So, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's like, I mean, it feels like we finished it so long ago. So I'm so excited to watch it again and relive it, you know. Well, having gone through that, knowing it was the last season, does that carry over to your experience with Jane the Virgin? Well, yeah, Jane's actually starting their fifth and final season, too, this year. So it's like the beginning of the end there right now. So it's like we're all trying to just live in the moment and love it and enjoy it because they're both so i mean i honestly i think jane and last ship are the antithesis opposite shows of each other <laughs> but um <laughs> they uh they're both such great great people and you know at their hearts i feel like they have such a great message although the message be very is very different it's um I'm, i love being a part of both of them now, The Last Ship has always managed to portray smaller stories of the Nathan James crew, even with the larger scope of the cast and of the adventure at large. So with the fleet growing larger in season five, did this become more of a challenge? And can you tell us a bit about Sasha's arc in the middle of all that? Yeah. So once again, you know, we finished off season four and we managed, you know, by the skin of our teeth that we got just the just the by the 
the seeds back and now we've skipped forward again three years and we see where their relationships are at, how those have changed. We see who's been promoted. We see how, you know, what's happened. And there's some, my personal favorite promotion is who's the new captain of the Nathan James. I think the fans are going to particularly love that. And, um, yeah. And so we see Sasha and Chandler's relationship where they're at now at the end of season four, you know, they said they were going to try a fresh start and, you know, they both have been through the mills. When we met Sasha, she was recently widowed. Tom was also widowed. And so they're finding their way to, back to each other. And whether it be fate or just coincidence, they're back in each other's lives. And we see what that relationship is going to be like, you know, also with his kids and everything. You know, Sasha's a woman who's more comfortable in the heat of the battle than living like a civilian life. So we see her again still leading vulture team challenges with Wolf, Azima, and Green and they're you know, they we got they got to push us to a new place. And sometimes it felt like we were this cool rogue team going out. That's where you see us in the beginning of season five and we get to see Sasha out of her tactical gear and um, you know, jeans and T shirt and she's turning heads at this black tie event, infiltrating this president of Panama's event. It was a really fun day. Um, (laughs) Jody and I got to get all dolled up and hair and makeup got to have their funnest day with us. Yeah. You know, there was so much, so many fun memories. So, well, I mean, season five's gone beyond the red flu and, and it looks like a possible world war might be on the horizon. So, I mean, it sounds like knowing that the series was ending allowed for the stakes to be raised as high as they could go. And while it certainly helps the writers, does it make it easier on the actors, especially knowing that you might not make it to the end of the season? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we did all have running bets about who was going to live and who was going to die. There was a lot of, you know, we're going, no, I want to die. No, I'm going to (laughs) die. Everybody wants their like dramatic final scene. We're such like greedy actors that want that, you know, but uh, you know, we did want to do all of our characters justice. And I feel like Steve, came up with a really cool way to tie the show back to season one. So, you know, it started with this red flu virus and now we're season five, we actually have a cyber virus. And so the whole crew is sent back to like world war two and we don't have any of the access to the high tech gear. So we're using paper maps and, you know, push pins and everyone's like set back into fighting a war back in that time. And so it's really bare bones and we get to see, you know, really what these characters are capable of when it's just themselves. Well, now I have to say, because there's some similarities here, Dave and I are big fans of Agent Carter. We even podcasted about it. No way. We podcasted about <laughs> it every week, <laughs> every oh, episode. Man. Oh, that's awesome. And one of the best parts of Dottie's arc was when she fought alongside Peggy. Yes. Leading me to conclude that the only thing better than a leading lady kicking ass is another female supporting cast member yes. also kicking ass by her side. Ooh, I like the way you think. Yes. So that seemed to be the case with Sasha and Azima last year. Are we going to get to see more of that this season? Absolutely. Jodi was one of my favorite additions to the show. She brings such a positive, passionate, and fun energy to the show. And Azima is such a great character as well. I love that the show brings in... You know, there's so many great American characters on the show, but then to have, you know, the Australian wolf and, like, everybody's coming together. And I actually think that's one of the best things about our country is when we work together with others and the show mirrors that with 
other people that are willing to make these huge sacrifices and team up and fight, you know, against the odds. And so Azima and Wolf's relationship is also one that we get to see how they've progressed over the time that we've skipped over when we start season five. And then also, you know, Sasha and Azima, it's like they're there's a special relationship, and I personally have a really, really deep love for Vulture Team, which is Travis, Brent, and Jody. We got to work together a lot, and you know, there's this family-like loyalty and this, you know, coming together for the common good. And there's just no no hesitation in terms of what we would do for each other. You know, you're not, and and there's also the stakes are so high. If you make a mistake, your friend's going home in a body bag. So you gotta be on your game and protecting one another. And I just, I loved working with them. My favorite day on set was with Vulture Team. It was actually a episode directed by Last Ship's longtime A camera operator, Bud Crimp. And he got to step into the director's seat. And there's a moment where we think we're losing one of the members of Vulture Team. And that person's telling us to leave them behind. And it was so intense. And, you know, the writers let us go off script. And it felt, it was the most like, I mean, I have goosebumps right now talking about it. It was so, (laughs) it felt so real. We were in the real jungle shooting this. And afterwards we were all shook. The writers came out, they were all crying. (laughs) It was such a great, awesome day. It's like, you feel like you're really going there. And I owe that really to my, my fellow actors because they're so dedicated and so present. And Jody's a big part of that. And Jody's a series regular now, correct? Yes, she is. So proud of her. I so, can't wait to see more of that. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of goosebumps, part of what made the dynamic between Sasha and Tom great ever since your character was introduced in season three is that everything that happened between them was in the past, which mm. kept fans from focusing on Sasha replacing Rachel Scott. So while yeah. the relationship <laughs> smoldered, it never really rekindled. I mean, did you like the understated way the writers handled it or did you wish maybe for something more well you know what this show isn't like a soap you know we're not gonna like and also these characters aren't the type of people that are gonna hem and haw over their relationships and go into the locker room and cry and talk about their feelings you know (laughs) that's not who these people are and i think sometimes the fans expect that because there's so much of that kind of show out there where people are talking about their feelings and showing emotion. These people don't have time for that. You know, they have so much more at stake. And also let's remember the policy on, you know, fraternization on board a ship, you know, we're trying to, you know, Tom Chandler is not one to really break rules. Sasha, on the other hand, I think she is. <laughs> she's always breaking rules. And, you know, she's not perfect. She makes mistakes and all that. But yes, sometimes I long for those scenes because I personally like watching them. And I personally am more of an emotional person than Sasha is. We're very different in that way. But I felt like it was really true to who they are as people. And I know there was lots of other drafts where, I remember Steve telling me that there was like, you know, there was a draft where Sasha and Chandler had to, you know, charter this small like catamaran to meet back up with the Nathan James. So they were alone and they were off the ship and like, it was like that, but that's just, that's not the show, you know, and that draft ended up being put into the recycle bin. I guess. <laughs> but I, you know, it's, it's just, it is what it is. This is an action based adventure show. And I love that they don't put themselves first. It's actually at the core. I think the most pure 
and true thing about the show because, you know, it's, this is the military. People leave their families, their children, their loved ones, you know, and make sacrifices against insane odds. And uh, I like that about it. If you want to see that version of Bridget Regan, you have to tune into Jane the Virgin, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talk about a telenovela, you know. <laughs> Very different. But you actually have touched on a lot of different genres in your career. I mean, you were in the fantasy series Legend of the Seeker. Yeah. You've done the comic book thing with Agent Carter and yes. you could call Last Ship kind of a sci-fi adventure. Yeah. Are there other genres that you haven't gotten to explore that you'd like to? Maybe horror or supernatural, something like that? Well, I did do a um, a film. I did it a couple years ago up in Winnipeg with Milo, Ventimiglia, Sean Ashmore, and Amanda Schull called Devil's Gate. And that Devil's was... Devil's Gate, yes. Oh, yeah, a little bit horror. Yeah, for sure. Definitely um, in that world. I would love to do another horror, actually, something more classic. Um, I loved Get Out. I love that whole style and how the genre's changing. I think it's really cool and exciting. I mean, mostly I want to do... Um, musicals now. Oh, wow, <laughs> I love cool. musical theater so much. That's actually my first love. So I would love to do a musical next. Now that's not what we would have expected to hear you say. <laughs> Did I surprise you on that one? Yes. Yes. That would be a very pleasant surprise if we saw yeah, that. For sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today about The Last Ship. We can't wait for the season premiere on September 9th. Awesome. Thank you, guys. All right. What fun that was, Dave. And I know you haven't gotten too far into The Last Ship yourself, but Bridget Regan sort of just gave you a, a wonderful flavor for her character and the enjoyment that she's had on that show. Uh, and she was just really delightful. I mean, she really seemed pleased when we told her about our Agent Carter experience. So that, that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, that was a moment. It felt genuine, her reaction there. But for those of you who are interested, The Last Ship premieres on September 9th on TNT at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. And it's the last chance, and it, it sounds like from that interview that the stakes are going to go through the roof. So thank you very much to Bridget Regan for joining us for our interview segment. Well, we hope you enjoyed all these different topics and uh, show discussions that we had here. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. You can keep the discussion going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And unlike September, we have a ton of shows to choose from for October, so we'll let you know when we select. And in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And now Spotify as well. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can send an email to scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.